I definitely conformed. I definitely followed the path. It was only when I was very, very sad after I had graduated college. I was like, this is it. This is all there is. Like, it's just more of this for the rest of my life. And that was incredibly depressing to me. If I wake up every day hoping that I don't wake up, either I can just live the rest of my life like this, or I can just die to somebody else. Because right now I'm dead to me. The internal dialogue was I have to die to my father in order to live for me. Most people don't achieve big shit. Most people are security driven. It makes sense that everybody around you will tell you not to do it. They will be right most of the time. But the thing is, is you only need to be right once. If you could fail for 10 straight years, and then on your 11th year, make a $2 million a year business, you are further along than the person who made $100,000 a year that entire period of time. It's just people measure outcomes on too short of an interval. And that's why they don't get what they want. What is up, young and profiters? You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, where we interview the brightest minds in the world and unpack their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. I'm your host, Halataha. Thanks for tuning in and get ready to listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast, Alex. Thank you for having me. I'm super pumped to have you on the show. So my producer, Jason, who just met offline, is the first person to introduce me to you about a year ago. And we are always referencing your work at Yap. And it is just so cool that one by one, I seem to be interviewing all of my idols in business. So very thankful for you taking the time to come on the show and just really, really respect your work. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. It's very kind of you to say. To introduce you to my Yap fam tuning in, Alex is a first-generation Iranian-American entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. He started his entrepreneurial journey running brick-and-mortar gyms, and after taking some good advice from Russell Brunson, he ended up selling those gyms and eventually licensed his business model to start the company Gym Launch, which scaled to over 4,000-plus locations in four years. At the same time period, Alex and his wife, Leela Hermosi, bootstrapped and grew three other companies to $120 million in sales across four different industries. And in total, they have scaled and exited seven companies. And in 2020, the Hermosis launched Acquisition.com with a mission to help promising internet companies scale with their sales and marketing expertise. Their portfolio is currently making over $100 million per year. And talk about couple goals, young and profiting. Alex is also the author of one of my favorite books of business of all time, $100 million offers, how to make offers so good people feel stupid saying no. And he also has a YouTube channel. He hosts the podcast, The Game, and is quickly becoming one of the biggest social media influencers of our time. All of this, and he's just 33 years old, so he's the definition of young and profiting. And that's why we have him on for an extensive two-part interview today. So in part one of the show, we're gonna go super deep on his come-up story. We're gonna learn about his philosophy on life, marriage, money, and so much more. And then we'll get into some more tactical sales and marketing advice and how to leverage human behavior to design a $100 million offer. Let's talk about your upbringing. Like I mentioned, you're a first-generation Iranian-American. You're Middle Eastern like me. Tell us about what your parents were like. I know you haven't really talked much about your mom in terms of your upbringing. And what was young Alex from like growing up before you went off to college? I mean, I was a pretty quiet kid, I think, for the most part. I was, it was just me and my dad for the most part growing up. I didn't see my mother very much. 
And so that's probably why I don't, I don't mention her as much. That being said, it was, I had a Middle Eastern father. He was like, I got out of Iran because of school. And so do well in school and you too will succeed. <laughs> that was kind of the path. There wasn't really like an option of not trying hard at school. Like it just, it just wasn't a door. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's some things in America that are a little bit different. I genuinely believe that everybody can get straight A's. Now, I think the amount of effort that would be required for everyone is different. But I think given the time constraints that people have to apply themselves to school, anyone could do it. That's just Alex's perspective on the world. I don't think it would be easy for everyone, but I think everyone could do it. And I think most people, or oftentimes there's different things that are reinforced in their household. Like there's some people who are straight A's at football. And so that's the thing that their parents reinforce and reward. Because maybe that dad thought that he relives his football days through his son or whatever. And so that's what gets reinforced. And they spend three hours a day practicing and 30 minutes a day on all of the homework for all the stuff. So anyways, me growing up was mostly quiet. I think as I got into high school, I came into myself a little bit more. I was a little bit of an angrier guy. I was more of a, I would say I was more of a lone wolf during that period. I mean, I had groups of friends and whatnot, but I wouldn't say that I was particularly close with, you know, like deep. I'm still in touch with one guy, but that's kind of the extent of it. From there, I went to Vanderbilt because I did decently well at school. So I was able to get in. I think I needed to get out of the house for me to kind of just be me more uh, because there's a lot of, I'm sure from, and this isn't just a Middle Eastern thing, a lot of Asian parents, it's just probably just more foreign parents. It's just a little bit more pressure, I think, than is common in the American standard to conform a certain way. And I definitely conformed. I definitely followed the path. It was only when I was very, very sad after I had graduated college and I did it in three years and did, you know, I did all the stuff, you know what I mean? I was president Mm -hmm. of fraternity, vice president of the powerlifting team. I did all that. And then when I, when I got out and had my, my two years of consulting, it was a very miserable time for me. It had nothing to do with the, you know, with the the people or anything like that. It was, it was me. I just, this, I was like, this is it. This is all there is. Like, it's just more of this for the rest of my life. And that was incredibly depressing to me. And so that was when I had to kind of challenge the original paradigm, which is maybe the plan that was laid out for me was not my plan, but someone else's plan. I'm making progress towards a goal that I do not want in terms of my, my dad's viewpoint of, of me and my success, which was at the time all, all that I cared about. And so for me, it was really just not wanting to be alive, which became my kind of thing that got me to change, which I was like, if I wake up every day hoping that I don't wake up, then either I can just live the rest of my life like this, or I can just die to somebody else. I was like, because right now I'm dead to me. That was kind of the, the internal dialogue was I have to die to my father in order to live for me. And so that was 2012, 2013. I drove across the country. I called my dad to tell him that I had left halfway, <laughs> halfway there because otherwise I knew he would, try and, he would talk me out of it. I mean, very transparently, like my dad has had enough influence over me at the time that I literally had to physically separate myself in order to not be convinced because I knew that if I had not done that, he would have convinced me to stay because I had tried multiple times before that to be like, I'm not going to do this. I hate this. I don't want to do it. And he would always be like, you know, when I was a resident, we didn't sleep. This is just, you know what I mean? This is, t-. and to be fair, there's probably a certain degree that's true. You know what I mean? And he's like, just got to get through this and you'll get to the other side. And I think there's an element of that that's true. And maybe, maybe I was too soft. Who knows? Like, I, I don't know. I really was very, very sad. And so just the idea of being free was very liberating for me. Then I went to start my own business and was shocked by just how hard it was for me sleeping on the floor at my first gym. I remember having these, the story of the come up and that everybody loves the idea of like, yeah, you slept on the floor. Like it was not glorious. It was very lonesome. 
I didn't know anyone because I was in California. I'm from Baltimore. So I knew no one. And I was sleeping underneath of a warehouse where homeless people would be on top, like breaking bottles at all hours of the night. You missed a whole big part of your story. So let's back up. You ended up becoming an apprentice for some guy in California. So you ended up driving, where were you? From Maryland to California. Like you said, you called your dad halfway. And you decided you were going to basically work for free for this guy, 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. or whatever it was. And you followed this guy around a gym and you tried to learn as much as you can because you were obsessed, right, with fitness and gyms. And so you wanted to break out and learn from somebody else who had already done it. So tell us about that period of your life. So I emailed 40 gym owners because I knew from the consulting world, which is what I had graduated into, that the best way to learn is to seek out experts. And so they have already consolidated the information because there's no lack of information in the world. Like the issue is, is sifting through it at this point. And so finding people who've already pre-sifted it is more efficient. So I emailed 40 guys. He was the only one who got back to me. He had a seven-figure gym. His name was Seven Figure Sam. And so anyways, I just showed up at his doorstep a few days later. He was very surprised by that. He had a mastermind, which I joined, even though I didn't have a gym. It was for gym owners. And he said, yeah, if you join, then you'll start the gym the right way. And I was like, okay. But then I didn't have a gym. So he said, do you want to work for me? So he ended up paying me as an employee, even though I paid him for a mastermind. It was a very weird uh, <laughs> setup. But anyways, I worked for him at the gym and he said I could be his apprentice because he didn't really have a program for me. So I just hung out with him all day. And so he got to the gym at four and he would leave at four. So he worked four to four. I would usually stay an extra couple hours until six because I didn't know anybody. So I would just hang out at the gym because at least there was people there that I kind of knew now. I worked there for 12 weeks. It was kind of a crash course. I mean, imagine spending 12 hours a day with somebody who was a, a decent business owner at the time. You know, he had a seven-figure business. And so there's just so much that I learned so quickly. It's more like constructs. Like I didn't know things existed. It wasn't like I learned tactics. Like I just didn't even know email marketing was a thing. I didn't know affiliate marketing was a thing. I didn't know what a landing page was. I didn't know what ads were. I didn't know sales as a term existed. I didn't get it. And so I remember the first time somebody walked in, he's like, oh, go sign this girl up. She walked in. So I had no training, no script, no nothing. He just said, go sign this girl up. And I came from a management consulting background making slide decks. So I had no idea what I was doing. And so the girl came in and I was like, yeah, so uh, yeah, the gym's 129 a month or whatever it is. And you want to sign up? And she was like, yeah, I have to, I just have to, I don't have my credit card with me. I just have to go get it. I was like, okay. And then I walked out two minutes later and and I was like, yeah, she's going to sign up. He was like, you closed her in two minutes? And I was like, yeah, I guess. He's like, you got the card? And I was like, no, but she's, she'll be back. She said she's just going to go get a credit card. He's like, ah. Like, and it was like a bunch of guys around. They all cracked up because I had no idea how it worked. And so after that, he's like, dude, if you don't get the card, you didn't close. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I went to a workshop for a weekend. Uh, it was like $3,000, which was a tremendous amount of money for me at the time. They promised that you'd make $10,000 by the end of the weekend. I did not make $10,000 by the end of the weekend, but they taught Facebook marketing. And so this is 2013. And so I came back to Sam and I was like, hey, we should try this stuff. I think it's going to work. He said, I tried that. It doesn't work. And I was like, just give me, you know, give me a grand and I'll, I'll test it. So he said, I'll split the profit with you after, we, after I make my money back. And so um, I ran the ads the way I'd learned at the, at the workshop and made $6,000. And true to his word, he gave me $2,500. And uh, that was kind of like the beginning of my taste into marketing. And uh, during that period of time, I was looking for my own location. That was like far enough away from his thing that I wasn't going to compete, you know what I mean? But close enough that I could still be there. So I went to Huntington Beach and found an old warehouse on Gothard and Talbert. And that's where I uh, started my first gym. That's so cool. What a great story. And so I want to talk about giving up something good to go after something better. I feel like this is such a big lesson. I can relate. 
because when I started my company, everybody was against me. I had a great corporate job. I was running a marketing department at Disney streaming services. Everyone was against me. My boyfriend of 10 years, who I thought I was going to marry, was so upset with me. I had to break up with him to start my business. And I moved out. And that's when everything took off for me because I felt like somebody was stepping on my neck and I finally was like released from it. I'd love to talk about why it's okay to leave something good to go after something better and what you learned from that. This is a really, really deep topic that I like a lot. And I don't think I've talked as much about it as I really like to. I think the hardest decisions in life are giving up good for great. And I think oftentimes what makes it hard is that your good is someone else's great who's casting their projection onto you and saying, why would you give up great? And so it's really just about expectations and standards that we set for ourselves and like not buying into people's dreams about you that are smaller than your dreams for you. And so I think it's really just continually trading up dreams as you realize what you can do. Because like my dreams now are significantly bigger than they were 10 years ago. And it's the scariest thing to do is to trade what you have now. It's basically trading the one in the hand for the two in the bush. So it's going counter the traditional common sense that people espouse. And most people are security driven. Most people don't achieve big shit. It makes sense that everybody around you will tell you not to do it because for most of them, it wouldn't make sense. And many times you will fail. They will be right most of the time. But the thing is, is you only need to be right once. And that's the piece that I feel like is missed is that they will see someone try something on their own and then fail and then say, see, and then they will confirm their bias rather than thinking like, well, if I do this a hundred times, I only need one time to be successful, to be set up for the rest of my life. The biggest cost is time against expectations that we have for ourselves or rather that we adopt from other people. And so this is for the, the listeners. If you could fail for 10 straight years and then on your 11th year, make a $2 million a year business, you are further along than the person who made $100,000 a year that entire period of time. It's just people measure outcomes on too short of an interval. And that's why they don't get what they want. The goals that they have, because they measure with such a small interval, they can't see success anyways. Right? It's like you can't make a billion dollars in a year. It's just not going to happen. Like no one, I don't, I don't think there's anybody who's made it from zero to a billion in a year. I could maybe nowadays, who knows? But like, it's, but if you extend it on 10, anyone can do it. And also people don't understand your experience, what you've done for yourself, you know, what failures you've had in the past, how you've learned. And sometimes these big, hard jumps actually have the most rewards. So let's go down a little tangent. I think this is a great place to talk about nihilism. So you are a nihilist. And at this point in your time and your journey, we'll get back to your journey. You weren't one, but you are now. And you don't let other people, people's beliefs really impact the way that you move. And so I'd love to understand what nihilism is, because for me, it was sort of a new, like not many people talk about it. And what is it that you like about being a nihilist? And how does this philosophy enable you to take on your dreams without worrying about what other people think? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Mostly because like, I don't really like the label of nihilism in general. I think it's just, I got on an interview and someone said that and I was like, sure. But like Nile, I think it's Greek or Latin, comes from nil, which means nothing. But it really just means that you don't, you don't believe that something has inherent meaning. And so for me, that's incredibly liberating because it means that we are devoid of circumstance. Nihilism, people ascribe meaning to that word, which is more, by and large negative. I reject the term. 
I just inherently believe that things don't have inherent meaning and that we choose the meaning things have. It does not mean that I live a meaningless life. It means that I choose the meaning that I want to ascribe to things. So I don't inherit the meaning that my father gave to having a job. I choose to ascribe my own meaning to that. And so all that happens from a behavioral standpoint is that we're changing the meaning of circumstances. And so it gives us a lot of liberty to live life as we see fit. And a lot of that comes, at least for me, big picture, because like I have the belief that when I die, people will come to my funeral, people will argue over my belongings, over who gets what. People will think that some people shouldered more of the responsibility of dealing with my funeral and my death than other people. Some people will not be able to make it because something came up. And two months, three months, two years after I die, I will never be mentioned again. And so if people are not going to even care to show up to my funeral, why would I live, let them have any say over my life? Yeah. For me, a lot of it was unlearning projected judgments that I believed people had over the actions that I was taking when they weren't even thinking about me at all, nor do they really care. Like, you get a hater comment, it ruins some person's day, but like, they don't really care about you. Like, they don't care. And even the very few people who really care, who might actually speak at your funeral, like how many people are actually gonna speak at your funeral? Probably not many. Even then, those people are gonna go home, they're gonna look at their to-do list, and they're gonna move on. And so it's like, you have this whole life and the whole time we're catering it to a lot of beliefs that, we, that other people have about us, and we don't take actions and we put things off for, for years, decades, because of judgment that, that isn't real, it's made, made up. And it's just hard to unlearn that. Believing that things don't have inherent meaning and then that we have the choice to ascribe whatever meaning we want to things has been very liberating for me in terms of how I can approach business, timelines that I can ascribe to success, how I see marriage, like, you know, all of these things. It's so interesting to me because we talk about death a lot on this podcast because a lot of business people bring it up. I had Robert Greene on the show and he talks about the law of death denial. And that's all about people avoid the thought of death because it scares them. But really, when you think about your death, it can help motivate you to accomplish your dreams. And you're giving us a whole other perspective, like thinking about your death to realize that nothing is that big of a deal. And who cares what other people think? You should just do your own thing and do what you want in the moment all this stress, all these problems that we have, they don't matter. No. I mean, there's a poem, like, I always forget the name of it, but it's like a, it's a, of an Egyptian king or something like that. And there's this, this head that's buried, it's sort of worn with time, 5,000 years old. You can imagine the nose is off, you can barely recognize it. And there's an inscription on the side and it says, here lies so-and-so who, I'm loosely paraphrasing, who ruled everything that the eye could see. I obviously don't know the name of, <laughs> of the thing. And so like, here's somebody who was king of the world or the known world at the time. And we, not even 100,000 years later, but a few thousand years later, don't even know who they were. I talk to entrepreneurs a lot too, and they're like, I wanna, I wanna leave a legacy. But like, when you zoom in on that, it's like, for what? Kids get ruined when you give them too much stuff. So that's kind of out the door. If you wanna go like extended time horizon, the earth is going to disappear when the sun gets too big. And so like everything that we're doing is just a stimulus for us to stay busy while all of our material needs are completely taken care of. I see it as liberating. Many people see that as dark. But like I think a lot of times it's just because like people don't want to confront that. The sun will get big enough and eventually evaporate all the oceans in the earth. There will be no water here. Like that's what's going to happen. We could be a multi-planetary species. Elon can, can kill it. Who knows? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Right? And I'm glad you went over that because <laughs> that was a huge interview that millions of people listen to. So I'm glad that you cleared that up. That's great. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who wanna try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you wanna make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password and then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Okay, so let's get back to your come up story. Let's talk about when you first started opening up gyms. What was that like for you? Like, just talk about, you know, your first experience opening up brick and mortar gyms. Well, my first gym, I was sleeping on the floor. Very fortunately, I had, a, I was supposed to open it with a partner, not Sam. Sam was going to be like a minority partner, like an advisor kind of thing. And he set me up with another guy who was in the area. And so this guy's in the mastermind. You guys should just merge your gym. He has a tiny gym. You want to have a bigger gym. You could start with his clients. You could split it, whatever. Which is, by the way, not a good way to start a partnership. But I said, sure. You know, I don't know anything. You're my advisor. I'll, I'll do that. And uh, the night before the lease was supposed to get signed and we we're going to put the deposit down, he couldn't come up with the money. And so 
I actually had to take on the whole thing, which I wasn't really financially prepared to do. So I ended up going from having, thinking I was going to have like twenty-five dollars or $30,000 saved up to having five when I opened a gym with no customers in a place I didn't know. And at least that was $5,000 a month. So I had one month of basically savings for this business before I would not have money. But the gift that that partner gave was that he was the one who told me to go to that workshop. He's like, we should do this marketing workshop. And by chance, the thing that that guy taught in 2013 was Facebook ads. Like, I have been extremely lucky many times in my life. And this is one of them. It's crazy because something as small as that, if I hadn't gone to that workshop, the recommendation that my advisor had given was that I should just run Groupons to get customers because that's what he was doing for his gym and it was working. But in Huntington Beach, there was 10 times the gym density compared to where he was. And so every gym, there was literally three gyms on the same block as me. And so when I ran a Groupon, nothing happened. If I had not gone to that workshop, I might not even be in business. Like I might've just gone back to corporate world and had to like come back with my tail between my legs because I would have failed. So I'll go on this quick tangent. Like my plan B was that I would strip and drive Uber if I couldn't make it. Because I figured I could make probably 250,000 a year doing that if I needed to. And then I could start again. Because once I was out, I was like, this is what I want to do. I knew even though it was hard, I liked the freedom. I knew that I, I enjoyed that. So anyways, did the workshop. I learned about Facebook marketing. That was what allowed me to sell my first 27 customers, which paid my first month's rent. The next month I paid more and we added $5,000 a month in revenue to the business for the first, I think, seven, eight, nine months, somewhere in there. I didn't know employees were a thing. So for me, I thought like a business was you pay the rent, everything else is yours. And that's pretty much how I ran it when we were you know, starting out. But uh, quickly, I was like, I, I cannot, like I was not sleeping much and I was doing the billing and I was doing working the leads and I taught all eight of the sessions every day. And it was just very, very hard for me. I was very tired. And so then I found out that you could hire people to do some stuff, but I still slept at the gym. So they would still get in there at four o'clock in the morning anyway. So it didn't buy me a lot of sleep back, but at least I, you know, I didn't have to teach all the sessions. But yeah, from there, by month nine or 10, I was able to get a manager in and I had a fully you know, out, outfitted facility. And then from there, we were able to uh, open the next location at month 15. And then I opened a new location every six months after that. And uh, you know, the big claim to fame was that once I got better and better at marketing and sales, I was able to open each location uh, at full capacity on the first day. And that's what ended up springboarding into the next thing. That's awesome. How much did you scale that up? You had like six, six of them or something? Yeah, I had six locations. So I opened a new location every six months. And so at year three, I had six. That was roughly where I was. And I think, honestly, I never added up the top line between all of them. I know my biggest one did 600. So it wasn't like a huge business in terms of, I mean, each lo- like my biggest location did 600. And so anyways, I got to this weird point where I, um, I wasn't needed. So like I had managers at each location, they could all sell, like the locations were working, I was making okay money. I had a nice little condo that looked fancy. So I felt like, felt cool. And so anyways, I, I went to go to this, another marketing conference. It was trafficking conversion years ago. And a guy named Russell, right, got up there and was selling people on internet marketing. And I was like, man, this is really interesting stuff. But he wasn't allowed to pitch. So he did his whole pitch webinar and then just didn't close. It was very weird. And so I was like very sold to this opportunity, but there was no call to action. <laughs> what happened? Nothing. I just kept living my life. But I was like, that was really cool. A year later, I, I'm up at night, nothing to do. And so I was like, you know what? I wonder what that guy, maybe I should do some of that stuff. And so I just Google his name. The first page that comes up is his application to be in his mastermind. This is again, six, seven, I mean, a while ago. I applied, they called me up. I paid the money. And um, they were like, oh yeah, there's tons of gym owners here. And 
you'll like, you know, lots of people go to, I was the only brick and mortar business owner (laughs) in the room. But anyways, I went up there and I was like, here's how I open my gyms, you know, profitable day one. I don't have to put any money down. Like I I pre-sell them to pay for them. Like I had this whole strategy. And um, after I broke down, like everyone was silent and he was like, you shouldn't be running gyms, man. And I was like, I had this whole plan to be America's gym. Like United Fitness was the, was the brand. And uh, no, he was just like, you have a level 10 skill set and a level two opportunity. And this was Russell Brunson ClickFunnels, right? Just so the listeners Yeah, are clear. this is years ago. This is before he was Russell Brunson ClickFunnels of the, of the Lord that he is now. I think ClickFunnels is maybe doing like a million bucks a month then. Like, I mean, it was, you know, it was, I think year two, year one, 18 months into ClickFunnels. It was very, very young. And so anyways, he said that, but you know, I, I'm a big believer. Like if someone's, if someone's further, because he was much further ahead than me when I was in the mastermind. And uh, he said that and I was like, well, if I'm not, if I paid for advice and I'm not going to listen to it, I might as well just burn my money. And so I took the advice. And so he said, you should start teaching people how to do what you do. And so I, uh, I took that not quite as literally as he probably meant it. So I started doing gym turnarounds. So I started flying out and launched other people's gyms, did that for almost two years, um, did 33 turnarounds. We'd fill the gym up 30 days. That was the offer. It was free to them. I would just keep all the upfront sales. So I'd make about hundred grand every 20 days doing that just on my own, no employees. And I was like, this is chill. I like this better than just running the gym. So I, was like, so I got really good at the marketing and sales. And I would say that me running all my gyms, I got very good at sales. But where it really got one from like, I just got so many reps in during that, during that period of time. I mean, I was taking 20 plus one-to-one consults a day, every day. And like when you have that kind of level of transactional sales over and over and over again, like you just, there's a depth of knowledge that you learn. You learn when to pause, you learn when to shift, how to say certain things, how to, like just how to shift tone. Like there's just lots of things that you intuitively learn just from that many repetitions. I got pretty good at it. And then I got pretty good at teaching it because I had, I had to have a team of guys who could start doing it because we started doing like two, three, four, five, six gyms a month that we'd start doing these, these turnarounds for. Logistically got really difficult flying people out. Guys said their wives were threatening to divorce them because they weren't home and like all that kind of stuff. And so I need to have a different model. There's like many terrible instances during this period of time. I like lost my money. I had a partner who stole everything. I had to start from scratch again. Like. I could keep going into it, but yeah, let's pause. Let's pause here because I, I do want to talk to you about the sales experience that you got. So, would you say that you learned most of it on the job, or were there certain books that you were reading, and what were you really into at that time period? Because I think sales is one of the most important skills that any young professional can have. Agreed. Yeah, the ability to persuade, and I would just say persuade in general because marketing and sales, like marketing, is really just sales done at at scale. Yeah, marketing and sales. Yeah. No, I wasn't really consuming anything. It was all done just the first time I bought a sales training program was after I like it was when I had a team of sales guys. And I was like, you know what, this would probably be a good idea to add it in. But at that point, I'd already done like 4,000 closes. So like I was, again, a lot of the stuff I, I didn't know the terms for it. I just knew I needed to get somebody to give me money. You know what I mean? And so that was like, this is how I have the conversation that gets the most people to say yes. <laughs> That's how I started it. That's so interesting. Well, part two of this, we're really going to get into some of those sales and marketing strategies. So this was around the time you met Layla, right? Yeah. This, it was, I think, within one month of me joining Russell's thing was when I met Layla. You have some unconventional views on marriage, and I have a few questions. First of all, let's talk about why your life partner is so important to your ultimate success. I mean, I think that people either are contributing to your goal or they're taking away from it. I think a lot of people compromise on their partners because they're convenient rather than thinking like, is this person going to make it more likely that I achieve my outcome that I want? And so, you know, for me, Layla was the first 
to be fair, I hadn't dated that many people because we were pretty young when we met. But she really, really not only like wanted to encourage the dreams, but like participate. And so I think a lot of times entrepreneurs will make compromises on, okay, well, I'll do this, but then I'll do your thing this weekend or whatever it is. And so like the nice thing with Layla is that she never really tried to change me. And because I probably wasn't that changeable, (laughs) I would have just (laughs) resented someone more for making me do things I didn't want to do or asking me to do things I didn't want to do. And so it was really just a new construct. I had just gotten out of a, like a basically on and off relationship that was a five-year engagement that we ended up calling off. And um, I had no desire to get into anything. I was like, I'm going to do me and you can like roll with if you want. And so like our entire first few months of dating was just, I'm going to work all day. You can work next to me. That was what we did from the day we met. Like the next day I called her up, I was like, I'm working all day if you want to come after your shift. And so she just worked with me. And that's what we did. And this really hasn't changed. Like we went from like first date until today with very little changing in our relationship. It was just, it was very easy. And so that's been even running a business together. Like I think because we had such low expectations getting into the relationship, it made candid conversations much easier. I was like, hey, I think it was you know six months in, I was like, you're a little cold. For this to work, I need you to be less cold. And then she was like, okay. And that was it. Like literally never again. Like Layla is one of the most fast changing people I've ever, actually not one of. She's the fastest changing behavior person I've ever met in my time. It's almost freaky. If I'm like, she used to say, um, you know, when, when someone laughs and they're like, you're stupid, you know, like, you know, girls will say that. She said that to me once, like early on. And I was like, I don't like when you say that. I was like, I just don't like being called stupid, even if it's a joke. And she was like, oh, okay. Never did it again. Like, if you define learning as same condition, new behavior, like if you haven't changed your behavior with the same condition, you have not learned. And intelligence is speed of learning, which is speed of behavior change. So in that way, Layla is incredibly intelligent. Like her ability to change behavior is insane. And so that's also why I think she's been such an adaptable COO, uh, or rather CEO now. She's really CEO of acquisition.com. I just, I make the content and write the books, but like she's really the one running everything. I think you gotta, there's so many ways to have marriages. This is what worked for me. And I am weird. If we're defining weird as not standard, like different from the average, like I am not the average. And so my marriage is atypical. And so this is just what has worked for us is that I like working all the time. And I wanted someone who would work all the time with me because if I didn't, then I wouldn't see them. And then we would drift apart because I'm getting way different stimuli from my life than they are. Inherently, we're going to adapt to the things that are, that we're exposed to all day. And eventually we're going to look at each other and be like, oh, we don't know each other. And some people that's exciting to me, you might as well be a stranger and I can just keep doing what my, my own thing. So probably contrary, but that's just how I see it. Now, it's very interesting stuff. And I'm sure because she was so smart and, you know, had her own thing and very career driven, you obviously respected her a lot. So how did that respect factor play into you being attracted to her and wanting her to be your wife? Yeah. So two separate things. So from a respect standpoint, she was the first girl that I respected professionally. And so that was new for me. And I think it was probably one of the keys of our relationship is that it was based on respect rather than chemistry. The second part was kind of like what you alluded to with like the attraction part. I wasn't like super, I mean, I was attracted to like, she's pretty obviously, et cetera. Like there was that, but I didn't have like a romantic, I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm getting swept on my feet. And neither was she. So we honestly were just like buddies. Like we liked the same stuff. And so we just did stuff together all the time because we enjoyed doing it together more than alone. And then it got to the point where it would be, it was where our employees at Gym Launch started saying, hey, 
what happens if you guys break up because we weren't married? And the business was scaling like crazy. And I said, you know, we should probably deal with their concerns and get married. And my proposal to her was, hey, what do you think about getting married? And she said, that sounds fine. And I said, okay, then I'll, we should, I'll get you a ring. And so we went together to the store literally after I said that. We got the, the ring 45 minutes later back home. I said, I guess we should call a church, called the church. Six days later, we were married. And then we didn't take off the day of our marriage and we didn't take off the next day. We just showed up the next day at work and we're like, hey guys, we're married. So all of your concerns about the stability of the business are gone now. You can keep working and everything's fine. And it was like, that was it. You know what I mean? And since then, we, haven't t- we didn't do a wedding. We didn't do a honeymoon. Again, what worked for me? I'm just saying like that worked for me. My vibe. Yeah. And so you guys are obviously a power couple that a lot of people are looking up to. And I learned from you that people who have businesses together that are married only have a 10% divorce rate, which I think is pretty incredible. So what would you say are like the pros and cons of marrying your business partner? And the other question I have is, do you feel like Layla fills in your weaknesses or do you feel like you guys are more similar and kind of just help each other accomplish the same goals? This is really interesting. So even the way that you phrased the question, I thought was cool. So I recommend marrying your business partner. I don't recommend trying to make your wife your business partner or rather your spouse your business partner. So we already were business partners and then I married her. And it worked. And people ask me, what happens if you got divorced? We'd probably still run the business together. Because I never want, and neither of us would want this, for the other person to get a free ride. You know what I mean? Like she doesn't get special treatment because she's my wife. She is CEO of the companies that we have together because she's the best CEO. She's amazing. Like you can look at the tracker. She's amazing. She fucking knows how to run businesses. That's why she's CEO. You know what I mean? I have so many entrepreneurs who are like, how do I get my wife to want? Like, dude, you're trying to change somebody. They don't like it. That's it. That's fine. But don't try and make her, who's not Layla, into your version of Layla. She has to be her. And I think to a great degree, a lot of, and this is, again, this is countercultural, but like, I do think people pick wrong. I think people use the wrong assessment to judge whether or not they're going to have a good long-term relationship. When I say good, I would say that's going to be minimum strife, maximum achievement of your personal goals for both people. Yeah. And I think people think about marriage differently. And so for me, marriage was, is this somebody, again, that's going to support my long-term goals and am I going to support her long-term goals? And for us, our long-term goals were aligned, which honestly was rare and weird. I didn't actually expect to see anybody who wanted to do the same thing as me and work as much as I do. But I did. And I'm very happy and very lucky that, that we found that. I just think the reverse, you get in trouble. Yeah. And would you say that she has strengths uh, where you're weak? Complementary skill sets, shared values. So I think, was it uh, mission values lifestyle? So these three have to be the same, and then you want complementary, so different. So it's like, we want to go the same place, we want to get there the same way, and we want to have the same stuff happen in between, right? So mission, values is how we're going to behave, lifestyle is what we do in between, right? Like we like all, like, or you can say interests if you like that. Those have to be aligned, in my opinion, for it to just be maximally fun. The complementary skill sets is if she did the exact same thing as me, one of us wouldn't be necessary. And we've also gravitated that way, because when she came in, she was top salesman. So she came in, she was top salesman at 24 at one of the top locations in the country. So she's a savage at closing. But the requirements of the business required, I was like, well, I'm going to still sell because that's what I'm good at. And I was older and it was my, you know, and when I started, it was my business. So I called the shots. But so, so she just, again, so adaptable. Like Layla can learn and change her behavior like that. And so she was like, I'm going to be an operator. And so then she just went all in. She, the books, the courses, the podcasts, the masterminds, the workshops, she just, all the stuff she consumed was different than the stuff I consumed which is cool because then we got to talk about different stuff. And like at the end of our days today, like every day, 
we download. It's like, what were your meetings? We just go through each other's calendars. Oh, how is that meeting? How is that meeting? How is that? And so we download at the end of the day, we do a walk for an hour every day. That's our download. And so yin and yang, I think it has to make sense like that. Otherwise, one of you isn't. I've seen the entrepreneur assistant wife or husband. It's tough. It's tough. I think you have to have equal power. And that's rare. It's rare because it's usually uncommon for both people to be like equally yoked. I mean, you want them, want both people treading the same way. And it's hard to find that. If you want to do rare shit. Talk to us about that. How did you meet her? Bumble. So I swiped right. (laughs) Swiped right literally and swiped right in terms of right and left. I swiped right. Swiped correct. She was an Iranian girl and uh, was into fitness. And when I met her on our first date, she really wanted to talk about business all the time. And I'm like, well, this is great. I don't have to like pretend to like what you like. So this is so much more efficient for me. And so uh, we talked for like four hours only about business. And I was like, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, she was telling me what her dreams and aspirations were. And she had big dreams. And she wanted to open a gym someday. At the time, I think I had five. I had five or six, I can't remember. And uh, I was like, let me just leapfrog you. I already know what you're about to try and do. I know all the failures. Like, just like, I already have like the ones that I have. I'm starting this new thing. You should do it with me. She didn't really believe me yet because I hadn't even started it yet. So it was just kind of like an idea you know, right on her. And she had built up her own personal training business, like a roster of clients. And so she had her own thing going. But I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And so I went and I launched three gyms, came back. I processed like 100 grand in front of her. And she was like, what the hell is this? And she, I mean, she ended up processing it with me. But she was like, is this legal? And I was like, yes. And she was like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> so she ended up quitting and joining me there because she knew it's like, there's product market fit. There was a, there was a viable, like people wanted this and, and, we, and I was good at it. And so that's when we started flying around doing the launches together. Now my gyms kept running, but it was very clear that as I left, like they weren't doing as well without me like being there. There's just all the intangibles. And so I ended up selling those and just going all in on the launch thing, put all my money from the sale. I mean, I've, I've, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it to your audience quickly. I had all the sale of my gyms, went all in on gym launch, started launching gyms, doing well with that. One of the gym owners I launched with was like, dude, you should be owning all these gyms. Like you're literally filling them up and you're leaving all this money on the table, which by the way, most dangerous term in business is leaving money on the table. It's okay to leave money on the table because you're, you will fuck up the big money that's in front of you by trying to chase little money that's still on little tables. Anyhow, he had bad credit. So I signed the lease. I fronted all the money for the locations. We were going to split them uh, 50-50. Of course, that's a terrible deal for me. I'll do all the work, front all the money, and then we'll split it. But I didn't know anything. So anyways, he was supposed to come in after I launched the first gym. With him, that was number six. And I uh, crushed the launch. And then he was like, hey, man, I'm going to keep running mine. You got that one. And I was like, whoa, I'm doing launches now. Like, that's not my business. You were going to come behind me. We we're going to launch, open two, three, four gyms a month and own them all. And then it kind of rapidly spiraled down from there. And then he thought he accused me of stealing. So then he took all the money out of the account. I went to go line for line with him. Be like, I haven't taken any money out of the account. Like, it costs money to open a gym. And when he didn't want to look at the financials, that's when I knew that he, that was just a line. That was just like a strategy. And so I basically lost everything. So I lost all the money that I'd had from my own gyms and lost all the money from that gym. But the thing is, I still had a gym. So there's no money to run the gym and I didn't really have any money. So I just had whatever was in my checking, which every month, basically, I couldn't sell anymore because I didn't want to keep the gym open because he wasn't going to run it. So my savings just got drained. If you have payroll, rent, everything, and you can't make new sales in a new gym that doesn't have recurring revenue, really, really tough. And so I got drained almost of everything. And then I started doing launches again, sent Layla out. She did a launch on her own, first solo launch, crushed it, still has the record to this day, did 240 sales in 28 days, made me 100 grand. 
And that basically helped me pay off all of these debts of refunds that I had to do for people who bought a year and all this stuff like upfront. I just refunded everybody their money, which just came out of all the money that I had. The one thing I had a coach at the time, and he was like, just do right by everyone and you'll be able to get out of this. And so it was really good advice. And so I just, I did right by everybody. Like no employee was unpaid. Every client who wanted a refund got a refund and I was able to just like walk away unscathed. And so I was at ground zero again. We did another launch. So the, hundred, the first hundred grand went to cover all the refunds and stuff. We did another launch to kind of like recapitalize ourselves. It's like, okay, we can go make another hundred grand. Cause I was kind of like, we make a hundred grand on every launch. And so we went to go do a launch. A guy said his, he had a baby on the way. He was, just happened to be in the neighborhood of the gym that we were going to launch of all places in the entire nation. A guy reached out to me. He crushed it. All of a sudden, we're not getting the deposits, even though I'm, I'm processing all this money. And I'm like, where the hell is the money? Call the processor up. Standard annual thing. Well, you'll be getting your money soon. Called again two days later. St- same thing. And then finally, it's, it'd been 10 days since I'd had a deposit. Imagine anybody who had like no Stripe, like not getting deposits, but still processing money. I was like, dude, I need this money. Like, what's going on? And so I called Christmas Eve and uh, I said, I'm not getting off the phone until you send me my money. And um, turns out uh, they can keep your money. <laughs> and I had no leverage. And they said, we, uh, you, will get, you will get off the phone because we're not sending you the money and we're going to hold it for six months because of regular activity. Because what I was doing was processing money from all over the nation through what used to be my brick and mortar gym's processor. I didn't know how it worked. So I just was, I was running like credit cards from Virginia through my Southern California local gym processing account. They're like, what is going on here? So it seemed irregular. So they held all the money. But my sales guy had, that I, the guy who had done it, I owed him like $22,000 in commissions. And I had $23,000 left after all the refunds and the, everything that I had done. And then that got me to my, my last $1,000. And so that, is, uh, that was my rock bottom moment. <laughs> I screenshotted it after everything, four years or five years or whatever it was. Like, I was like, wow, I have literally nothing to show for it. That's tough. And was this around the time where you got your DUI and, and got into a car accident? So my mother went to the hospital for tough stuff. I got in a head-on DUI, 60 miles an hour on a highway, walked away. Crazy. Nothing. Walked away. Walked out of the car. The car's crushed. And then I lost all my money from my partner. And so that was all 90 days. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, I'm about to be jet-setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. I'm going to be up there with the bright lights, and I want to be spiffy. I want to look fresh. And so I'm going on a big shopping spree. I got to get clothes. I got to get hair stuff, skincare stuff, makeup. But I'm not going to feel guilty about this shopping spree because Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Rakuten is the shopping platform for savvy savers. From May 6th to May 13th, they're having their biggest cashback event of the year. I'm talking about 15% cashback at hundreds of stores with additional cashback bonuses. And they've got so many stores participating in their big give week. So when it comes to clothes, I'm looking at Splendid and Good American. And when it comes to beauty, they've got so many good stores participating. They've got Ulta, Fenty, Bobby Brown, Blue Mercury, and all the products that we love, now we can get cash back. It's like getting a discount on the stuff you're gonna buy anyway. It's absolutely amazing. They even have travel brands, so that's gonna be super convenient for me with all my upcoming trips. Expedia, Hotels.com. You can get deals on everything from electronics to home goods to travel and beauty. 
Young and Profiters, you're going to want to grab this limited time deal with both hands. You get high cash back rates for only eight days. So hurry, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting, and all of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that, I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify Magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day to set up my Shopify store. I set up chat, took two minutes, and I was done. One month from thinking of the idea to implementation, a year later, I've made half a million dollars on the idea. That's what it takes in 2024, just a good idea. And then utilizing a platform like Shopify that can help you make it a reality. There is no excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm going to like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. 
So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah. And so what I found was really interesting when I was researching your story, you didn't mention it, but you also had like a dental and chiropractic agency, I think at the time, and you were like running these gyms, you were doing your gym launch business and you hired an attention coach. So what did this attention coach teach you about having to focus and make decisions? Well, like the one output of the entire time that I had with him was just untangling loose attention. It's like I was just spread so thin. So I had all these things that you just alluded to. I had a chiropractor agency that I had a couple clients. I had a dental agency that I had one client. I had my five gyms from home. I had the new gym. And then we had gym launches that were going on, basically paying for all of my stupid mess ups during this period of time. And um, he's like, you have no power. You are so spread thin that you, you can't accomplish anything. And so what it was was that I was not confronting many hard conversations. So I would do any, I would start another business. I would avoid, it was all avoidance. So I didn't want to have hard conversations with partners. I had partners at all of these things. And for most of them, I was the, I don't want to say the breadwinner, but I was the one who was bringing it in. So I ended up just partnering with people because I felt insecure about doing things on my own. This is where partnerships have to be long-term. Like even if, this is a side note, like if you have the opportunity to get 50% of a business that you know you're not going to contribute 50% to, don't take it. Because two years from now, they will resent you and it will not work. So there's no point in getting the short money because it's going to blow up in your face and be really ugly. And so I learned that on the opposite side, being on the receiving end of that. And I was like, I will not do this to anyone. And so, anyhow, every day he would ask me the same question, which is, what is your attention on? And so piece by piece, it was just every day we would just start peeling back all the things and just removing things from my life until there was basically nothing left but one thing. Layla and I went on like a six-week breakup Basically, she went to go launch a gym and I was like, I just don't have headspace for this. Fundamentally, we talked every day, but like, but like from attention standpoint, I was like, I can't deal with anything. I had too much on my plate. And so I broke, broke everything down to nothing and then just rebuilt with the few things that mattered. And I think that since then, that has, despite my proclivity for wanting to do more things, it has been the hardest, hardest one character trait I have is being able to focus by far. Yeah. So let's get back to gym launch. You start this company, you basically start licensing your business model. So talk to us about how, why is that such a scalable opportunity for the new entrepreneurs out there? Like, why is it better to take something and teach people how to do it rather than trying to do it one by one? So just big picture, I don't think it's necessarily better. I think that it has faster scale. Like, for example, we have a handful of companies in our portfolio that are brick and So I had a company recently that was an agency for photography studios. And they had a very good model for growing photography studios. And I was like, and he was like, hey, I want to do what you did with Gym Launch. But there were a couple of key differences in the business in terms of how much it costs to start up. The nature of the service itself is one-time versus recurring, et cetera, et cetera. And it made more sense for us to actually own all of them and then compound by adding more, more locations every month. So we open like four locations a month right now. And so if I knew then what I know now, real, real, acquisition.com might not even exist. 
I might have 200 gyms. But the thing is, is that my operational skill set at that point wouldn't have been able to scale that business. It is easier to scale something that has more leverage. So media has leverage, software has leverage, capital has leverage. Like one person can raise a billion dollars. One person can write code and a billion people can use it. One person can make a video like this and a million people can listen to it, right? There's leverage there. Limited input, unlimited output. With labor or services, right? Like you have to be able to operate people. And so I didn't have that skill set. I think that now we have a team, et cetera, like we could do something like that. But then I didn't have it. And so given the skill set I had at the time, me switching from brick and mortar operations to licensing it and basically taking a fraction of the revenue I was able to make other people, I was able to scale that much faster. And so I could help 4,000 gyms make an extra 100 grand a year in profit and then take a percentage of that profit. So realistically, I would be able to take probably 25 to 30% of the added profit to the facility through my licensing. They would win, I would win, and that's just the nature of capitalism. And so that was the trade-off. Now, a licensing business or any business has value insofar as the future revenue is stable and predictable. So the reason that I like brick and mortar a lot of times for scaling is that if you count the locations, almost like customers, if you think about it like that, they're not going anywhere. And so it's like every time you open a location, it's like you can bank on the fact that they're going to just deliver $150,000, $200,000, $400,000 a year in income to the, the main business. And then we just reallocate capital and keep doing it, which is why it's such a nice, nice and scalable business. That's why franchising versus licensing, franchising those contracts are more ironclad. You're in for 10 years. There's a lot of law that protects the franchisor to make sure that they can collect on that for 10 years. Licensing, it's much less so. And so anyways, not to go into a big tangent here, but the main point is me switching from brick and mortar to licensing made up for the fact that I was not as good at operating it because my constraint was my operational ability, not my marketing and sales. And the product that I was selling was marketing and sales. I was really good at marketing and sales. And then the thing I sold was marketing and sales. And so like, I was better at teaching marketing and sales than I was at like, weight loss experiences. So if you just think of quality of the product, like, the marketplace valued making $100,000 a year in extra profit far more than Susie values six weeks of group training and losing 20 pounds. Far more. And so I was able to switch my vehicle that I, was, that I was selling, and that was a big part of why I was able to make a lot more money. Talk to us about how you started Acquisition.com. Oh, yeah. So, um, I mean, Acquisition.com started in 2021. The first company we took on was 2020. So June of 2020, I think, was the first company we took on, which is that photography business. We also took on a, a personal training certification business, and we took on a publishing business in 2020. Those three businesses, between the three of them, added over $100 million a year to those businesses in total. And so we thought, hmm, we should do more of this. And so once we had that as like, okay, we have a, we have a workable model here where we can just take all the knowledge we have of scaling our companies. And the reason 2021 was, so, was boring and difficult for me was because I had to, I had to sell, I sold three companies. So for anybody who's ever sold, like going through a big sales process is a year. And you usually don't change much in the business. You don't want to do anything crazy. And so there was just not a lot for me to do. So I just had to sit there. And mind you, they made money, which then gets into the whole meaninglessness thing. But I just had to sit and wait. And so Acquisition.com and these companies that I was working with on the side took my focus. And to the point that I, you know, we were making earlier about focus, I know myself well enough to know that like, I have to do one thing. And so I needed to exit these companies so that I could focus full-time on acquisition. But I wanted to just have like a quick test in the water that it worked. And so once it did, then we sold December 24th of 2021 is the day that the, the last deal closed. And the 25th, so the, you know, Christmas Day, we were working on acquisition.com. And so 
I started making content in 2021 because again, I had extra time. And so I was just making stuff and people seemed to like it. And then everything really took off in 2022 when we brought in a team and editors and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, now we have 16 companies in the portfolio and we do, we take minority, minority interest in businesses. The average company we have right now does about 17 million a year with uh, margins above 35% as a portfolio average. And so, yeah, so our goal is just to get as many of them as we can over a hundred. And then it's really the founders because we're minority partners. You know, we're 20 to 30% uh, equity holders in those businesses. Man, oh man, Young and Profiters, another epic episode in the books with Alex Ramosi. Alex Ramosi is somebody we at Yap Media are pretty damn obsessed with because he's so smart and his perspectives are super interesting, especially when it comes to sales and marketing. Part one of this episode was all about Alex's super inspiring rags to riches come up story and all the lessons that came with it. And I hope you enjoyed it. We have part two coming out and that's gonna focus on his tactical business strategy. So mark your calendars because next Monday it's gonna be released and you guys can stay tuned for that one. Thanks so much for listening to another great episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. And if you learned something new, if you found value in this episode, share it with a friend, share it with a family member, put it on social media. And if you guys like YouTube and watching your podcasts on video, all of our episodes can be found on YouTube. You guys can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram and TikTok at Yap with Hala. And big thanks to my amazingly talented team at Yap Media. I couldn't do this without you guys. I appreciate you so much. And again, Yap fam, don't forget part two with Alex Ramosi comes out next week. And we're going to talk about sales, marketing, and all of his core principles in his best-selling book, $100 Million Offers. This is your podcast princess, Hala Taha, signing off. <laughs>